a Radio 191 FM podcast. Coming up this weekend is the 56th Otago Foreign Policy School. It's a two-day course where attendees of the public learn about a pressing foreign uh, foreign policy matter and they can ask questions uh, to experts about said topic. In 2022, the school is looking at Aotearoa's role in the contemporary political space landscape and it, the event features guests uh, guest speakers such as Minister of Foreign Affairs and Trade Nanaima Huta, as well as a range of academics and state representatives from across the world. This may have you wondering, is Aotearoa a powerful political actor in space? After all, Aotearoan-based rocket business Rocket Lab has launched satellites for both the US military and just yesterday the company launched a, launched a moon-bound rocket for NASA. Aotearoa has also become a signatory of NASA's Artemis Accords in 2021. It's an international agreement which seeks to bring humans back to the moon by 2025, and it expands space. Sorry, and it expands state space. It expands state space exploration capabilities. What a mouthful! Yesterday, I spoke with Otago Foreign Policy School 2022 director and space politics expert Maria Poza to 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 determine what involvement Aotearoa has in space and what benefits bring a space. Oh, what benefits uh, being a space-fearing power? brings to your country here that interview is now Alrighty. so how would you describe aotearoa new zealand's role in the contemporary spa- political space landscape are we forging our own path or are we more so sticking with our allies who are already quite established there's so many things that aotearoa is doing that really defines its role in this contemporary space environment. Are we forging our own path? Absolutely. It's probably a little beyond the status of our current state of affairs to say that New Zealand is still an emerging spacefaring nation. It's actually probably more clearer and accurate to say that it has emerged. There's a couple of things to take into account here. So first of all, when we think about New Zealand's placement on the planet, there's not much air traffic. So that means then that when we compare that to other nation states, if there's not as much air traffic going on, and if we don't have as many aeroplanes flying through the airspace, it means that we can conduct more activities, more launches, for example, from New Zealand into space. So if you can conduct more launches, then that means just a natural precedent. You're going to keep developing, keep developing, and you're going to be doing far more research and design, and you're going to be implementing more technologies you are going to be on a very, very high trajectory, if you like, for um, development of technologies that will be utilised in space. So that's the first thing, really, that we need to consider then, is our placement is really, really strategically beneficial for us to engage in more technological development when it comes to launches, especially in outer space. We also have to look at our internal framework. So we have a regulatory framework in place that governs space activities and it's overseen by the New Zealand Space Agency. Now, something that we have to think about is when you compare the New Zealand Space Agency to other nation state space agencies, let's just say NASA, for example, we only have about 40 people or so that work in the New Zealand Space Agency. So what does that mean? Well, it's again, it's another benefit. It does mean decisions can be made a lot quicker. Plus, you're actually speaking directly with the team at the New Zealand Space Agency, as opposed to having to go through a lot of different bureaucratic circles and chains in order to get to where it is that you need to get to. And similarly, you you have that engagement directly with the agency and they can really understand your project and it's, it's far more collaborative. So we have to think about then the foundation upon which New Zealand's forging path is built upon. And that is, it's a commercial foundation. 
So having that collaboration directly with our agency is certainly beneficial to that strategy, to that end game in order to forge this path. So there's a lot of really great benefits for Aotearoa at the moment in becoming this emerged space very nation and developing its space program into the future. Well, do you categorise some of the advantages of Aotearoa being a space-faring power? Is it a worthwhile investment considering some of the other things we could be putting money into, such as climate change? Look, climate change is a really, really important topic. So too is research and design that can be undertaken in space. For example, the MRI was developed in space first, and we use it every day here now on Earth for, you know, as part of our health system. I see the point that you're making, but... There is a lot of important work that is undertaken in outer space for us as humans here on Earth as well. What I would like to see, certainly, is more development in a sustainable means in which we can access space and do it in a way that is, for want of a better expression, it, it works alongside our environment. Rocket fuel is obviously very, it's, it's a pollutant, but... We need to be able to access space in order to develop these technologies that help us in our everyday activities. So there is a balancing act that needs to be undertaken. But I think in the future, what we're going to see is more development in fuel, for example. And we've seen it here in Aotearoa. We've seen a lot more development and incentives into buying electric cars, moving away from the petrol, from petrol industry, for example, and fuel. So we've seen the development of electric cars and especially incentives by the government to help us buy those electric cars. And I think we're going to see the same in the space agents, in the space, in the space arena. And I really think that that's probably where New Zealand is going to be forging, going back to that point, forging its path as a, um, as a spacefaring nation um, actor. I think we're currently looking, as I understand anyway, there's currently a couple of groups looking at alternative energy sources. And it's going to happen, but it does take time. It does take research. It does take technology. I think that we will get there. Putting your money in different places, I think money's going in the right place at the moment. Well, what are some of the challenges that lie in Aotearoa becoming a space-faring nation? Um, will we need to strengthen our cybersecurity and military defences to necessarily protect our space infrastructure? As a space-faring nation, something that we're always concerned about, any space-faring nation or whoever else, be it a private entity, we have to protect our assets. They are not cheap. Now, something that's really exciting about Aotearoa is we're very well situated on the planet to undertake low-Earth orbit satellite activities. So you use less rocket fuel, for example, which is good for the environment, and less time, energy, and a, a much more vast airspace to enter the low Earth orbit. So that's certainly where New Zealand is making its mark as a low Earth orbit um, launch provider at the moment, which is really exciting. Assets, even in low Earth orbit, they cost thousands as opposed to millions when during the Cold War, nation states used to, use, used to utilize far more often the geostationary orbit, which is about 33,000 kilometers from the Earth and has a very special relationship with the equator. So it's almost literally that your asset is placed over an area on the Earth. And as the Earth rotates, so too does the asset continue to be placed over that area. So the geostationary orbit was really very, very highly sought after. But LEO is really interesting because it's closer to the Earth. It's much faster. You can complete an orbit within 80 to 100 minutes or so there and about. And if you have strategically placed small satellites, because you don't need big satellites, 
in various parts of the planet, then you can provide the same sort of services as you would be providing from geo. So that's the first exciting bit. The po- and getting back to your question then, protecting our assets, even if they are only a couple of thousand dollars now, we still need to protect those assets from all sorts of things, certainly penetration from other assets that may accidentally collide with our assets and cause space debris. Going back to that environmental point, space debris is a big environmental issue. Similarly, something else that we have to consider as well is the cybersecurity over our assets too. We need to protect transmission from both uplink and downlink through encryption to make sure that we're really securing our messages to satellites to make sure that, you know, they're doing what it is we want them to do and that the information they're providing back to us isn't corrupted in any way. It's just it's coming straight back to us without any infiltration. So back to your question then, really, you know, the advantages for New Zealand to become a spacefaring nation and what does it mean for investment when looking after our assets? Something that's so important to take into account is that New Zealand is a good international citizen. That is our reputation at the international level as a good international citizen. So whilst we are a partner with Five Eyes, um, it is also important to really understand as well that we have good relationships with many other nation states, whatever their positioning is at this moment in time. We still maintain relationships. In my mind, the investment then, it's probably the same investment that any nation state would be putting in place for their space assets. And remember, you've also got non-state actors, those private space, uh, private entities. They're also putting in protective measures over their space assets. So I think what we're going to see is probably for the time being much of the same normality over the usual space uh, security, security over those space assets. But that may change in the future. I wish I had a crystal ball. (laughs) Is there much international law governing what states can and can't do in utilising space? Zach, how long is this interview? (laughs) There is a lot to go through when we're dealing with international space law. But look, I will say this. There is international space law governing space activities. And something that's really important to remember is international law is different from domestic law. So domestic law, we must abide by as citizens or as people here in Aotearoa. We must abide by the laws. You know, everything we do... As long as we're not breaching the law, we can go ahead and do it. But in international law, it works a little bit differently because it's between nation states. So they usually, states choose to adhere to international law and they usually sign things that look a little bit like a contract and we call those treaties. They can either be bilateral between two parties or they could be multilateral between many parties. And those documents outline what it is that the states choose to adhere to, what they choose not to do, what they choose to do, and how they choose to cooperate and work together. There's five major international treaties pertaining to space activities, and those treaties um, look at things that nation states choose to abide by. Now, one of the most important things, of course, and going to your point here, is under the Outer Space Treaty, 1967, and under Article 4, there is a general prohibition on the use of nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction. The problem is that with all of the major international treaties pertaining to space activities, they are the product of their time. And they were developed very quickly, which is fantastic for an international treaty. Usually they take many, many years to be agreed to. The treaties were developed and agreed to very quickly. So, again, fantastic and a real 
real look on good cooperation there, certainly during a time of heavy tension that was the Cold War. So it's really quite amazing when you think about it. We've got these treaties dealing with outer space. You know, the idea is the higher you are, the more you can see. And so from a military and defence and security perspective, space provides us with a great vantage point. But we have these treaties, and historically treaties take a long time to negotiate, and these space treaties were, were drafted and agreed very, very quickly. So we look at these treaties and we do find various flaws in them. So that prohibition, for example, again, a product of its time in the Cold War, did not define what a nuclear weapon was or, or what a weapon of mass destruction was. Neither did it then limit any other scope of other uses of assets already in space for aggressive means, for example. It just simply had those two things. Now, you might know what a nuclear weapon is, but there's various ways of defining it. And the same is true for a weapon of mass destruction. There's various ways of defining what is a weapon of mass destruction. And now in this present age, Zach, something that's really, really keeping me up at night is whether or not cyber and cyber infiltration is a weapon of mass destruction. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if it would fall within that definition, but it's just something that, you know, I think about and I think it might be time for us to revisit these treaties and maybe bring them up to speed with how the world has changed so much in the current age. This was a Radio 191 FM podcast. You can find more at r1.co.nz or wherever quality content is found.